What is the largest organism in the world? I, I'm not asking you to say it out loud, it, but it, I do have this desire to have a little bit of a test here. What is the largest organism in the world? Possibly it's the blue whale, weighing in at 109 tons, length of 100 feet. How many think that's the largest organism in the world? How many think I'm trying to trick you today? <laughs> Maybe that would be the case. Or I said organism. I did not say, uh, I didn't, I said organism, not mammal. So possibly it's the giant sequoias. I mean, you've seen the giant sequoias before. Giant sequoias, they're 270 feet high, trunk of 100 feet around. Is that the largest organism in the world? Or possibly it would be the Utah State tree. The quaking aspen. Each tree measures usually around 65 to 80 feet tall with a trunk about one to two feet in diameter. Let me think the quaking aspen might be the largest organism. Let me take you just a moment uh, and introduce you to Pondo. Some of you have heard this before. According to the New York Times, the world's largest organism has been identified in the Wasatch Mountains of your state here, the great state of Utah. It is known as the trembling giant. The name Pondo comes from the Latin meaning I spread out. It is a huge stand of 47,000 quaking aspen trees and stems growing from the root system of one individual male tree. It covers 106 acres. It's said to weigh 6,600 tons. It's genetically uniform and it acts as a single organism. I've described it kind of as in the fall when they begin to burst forth in their yellow colors. It's like the card section at a football game. You know, where everybody at the same time uh, changes colors, that one specific tree. Now, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor today. I want you to stand with me right here at the beginning. I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of an object lesson, a little bit of an exercise uh, that I think will help us kind of get a grasp of what is taking place here. The quaking aspen grows by sending new shoots off of the old roots. I want you to reach to the person next to you, uh, and whether it's your spouse or friend, or even if you don't like the person, just for a few moments, if you would take your arms and kind of link them together like this for just a moment. Just find somebody near you. I mean, we don't have to move around too much. That might be a little awkward for some of you, but... Uh, for some of you, maybe you haven't been touched in a long time. This is really cool. This is really neat. But again, the quaking aspen sends new shoots off of the old roots. And in this way, one individual plant can cover hundreds of acres from that single interconnected root system. Now, that interconnectedness not only gives it life, which is very, very key and important, but it also provides protection. Storms are going to come, and we've seen that happen, and uh, the winds are going to blow, so it's going to provide great strength during, different, uh, during difficult times. So I think this provides for us a great illustration of what we as the body of Christ need to be, in very much like the mighty Aspen, not one single tree fighting for survival on our own, but we're growing out of this common root of fellowship. And that's going to be a key word we're going to look at in our text today. You can unlink arms. Go ahead and have a seat. 
We're going to be looking this morning at Philippians chapter 1 at a message I'm simply calling Dear Fellowship. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. We just read that Scripture uh, just a moment ago. You'll recall Paul is writing this from prison. It's later in his life. He's going to be taking a stroll down memory lane, and as he's going down there, he's reminded of some very, very, diff uh, very, very special friends, uh, very diff uh, different personalities, different backgrounds, but all united around one key word. There was a word he used in there, the word partnership. Your King James Bible would translate it the word fellowship. We'll look at that in just a few moments. But the message this morning is going to be called uh, Dear Fellowship. But I want to begin by uh, introducing myself to you just for a moment. This is a screen grab from a website I have. It's easy to remember, PastorJeffDavis.com. I serve as the director of EMU International. On that website, different information on our family, our background, our story. Uh, there's links to media files, newsletter articles, to our ministry, the different ministry, uh, missionaries that make up our mission. Um, also on there, you can find ways, again, that we can connect uh, by way of uh, signing up for our newsletter. Uh, and, and with that in mind, on your way out on the little table on the wall, on this inside wall, uh, there's a little sign-up sheet there and a few prayer cards if you'd like to take that but we'd love to connect with you and be able to keep you informed on what's going on uh, with our mission um, I serve again as the director of EMU International my, this is a picture of my family uh, pastor mentioned my son Caleb he's down in Sandy Utah my wife Joanna is with me here today I put this picture of my kids up um, because I love to talk about my kids and we can't hold our wallets out like we used to do but technology's great because I can just throw this up like this but for many years my kids were known as Jeff's kids nowadays I travel and I'm across the country a lot and they're oh you're Caleb's dad or you're Bethany's dad I've got four kids they're all serving God they're in ministry uh, my youngest is about to graduate from Bob Jones University this year every one of our kids has been heavily involved in camp ministry that's been huge for us I know camp is very important in this ministry but uh, we've spent probably about 40 summers total, if you add it up, with our family members working at the Wilds Christian Camp, which has been very uh, special for us. But uh, this is my family. And then I have to show these. I'm a, a grandfather. I know I don't look old enough. I get that all the time. But, uh, but no, we've got the two precious boys that are there. They're Danelle and Sandy, and then my granddaughter in Raleigh. We're expecting another one in uh, this summer, another little girl. And that's to the one that's the little girl there. And we're not sure right now what the sex is going to be of the other one that Jamie is expecting down here in Utah also. My background is I served in pastoral ministry for 25 years. I was the youngest charter member of University Baptist Church in Clemson. How many of you have heard of Clemson before? Okay, if we didn't know about college football, what have you heard of Clemson before? little small town in the upstate of South Carolina. I grew up, went to public school there. We helped start a church called University Baptist Church when I was 10 years old. And uh, we, we launched that out. And again, being a part of the public school system uh, at that time, it was a very interesting opportunity to get to know the Lord, to grow in Christ, to begin to understand what the gospel was. And even in that public school setting, God was doing a work in my heart in life. Now I was a typical public school kid, but at the same time, I had a burden to serve God uh, with my heart. And God led me to go to a Christian college and uh, work at a Christian camp. And it was there that I met my wife. And uh, after graduating and getting my master's degree, 
I ended up working at that same church in Clemson, and I was at University Baptist. I was 23 years old or so. And then at 24, that church launched me out to help church plant. And I know some of you have been involved in church plants. That's, that's huge here. But uh, God led me to start Harvest Baptist Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. So 24 years old, I was the pastor. And at 28, I'm thinking, okay, I need to be older, and I need to be wiser, and I need to almost get a second master's degree is what I was looking at. And I went up to Muncie, Indiana, and I was under a veteran pastor as an assistant in his church. His name was Dr. Collins Glenn, and uh, he was the president of the Indiana Fundamental Baptist Fellowship. He was the president of the Indiana Association of Christian Schools. And that set my journey for the next 15 years after I've left that ministry from 2000. 2010 I was in Wilson North Carolina large church large Christian school I think we had about 600 enrolled in our Christian school uh, in 2010 the Lord led me back to the upstate of South Carolina where I pastored Oakwood Baptist Church and Oakwood Christian School and uh, I did not take my first international trip until 2009 but God used that really to open up my heart and mind the idea of missions we took I went to Hong Kong and China I went to um, El Salvador with 24 from our church. We took 33 to Romania, and God used that. But then God introduced me uh, in 2016 to a ministry that was started by a pastor in his 40s, very similar to myself, feeling God's definite call on missions. He wanted, 1946 is when the mission started, right after World War II. Of course, the geopolitical stage was uh, quite interesting at that time. A lot of Europeans fly, uh, fleeing to South America. And a lot of them landed down in Uruguay. Well, he went to the small South American country of Uruguay, and uh, as, as he ended up in that little country there, folks tell me, Jeff, it was like a New Testament movement. He never really learned Spanish, but he was in the markets, he was training, uh, a lot of Bible education, um, Bible Institute training, camp work began, and churches began to be, begin started there. And it was a ministry that exploded. And again, from the beginning, the focus was very clear it was a threefold focus to establish churches and you know works of evangelism establishing churches and then equipping nationals to do the same thing and that was a very very key part of our mission was the idea of, of nationals reaching nationals here's a photo of many of our missionaries and I'm gonna fly through, through this those are our Uruguayan missionaries here's a photo of a work conference that we do every year in February I get the privilege of going down and working with our national missionaries and training them and uh, then, as you can see from our photo here, uh, we've, we've got church ministries that we're a part of. We're also involved in camp ministries. And if you follow John Mark Steele a little bit, you're going to know some of the things that he's involved in down in Uruguay. But in the late 80s, we began to expand it to other fields. And you can see some of those on the map behind us. We're actually in nine different countries, and we've expanded. The name was Evangelical Missions to Uruguay. Now it's Evangelical Missions to the Unreached. We're a small agency. Uh, these are the other cross-cultural families that are serving a uh, handful of nationals also down in Mexico that are part of that. We've got works of linguistics and Bible Institute, children's ministries, uh, different avenues and angles that we use to serve the Lord. Real quickly, I want to just fly through our different missionaries. In Uruguay, we've got the Espinel family and also the Steele family. Now, John Mark's back in the States. I don't know how many of you have heard this. You know, his father passed away a couple months ago. And he's here in the States. He was going to be doing a short furlough. And he just defended his, dis, or his uh, doctoral dissertation a couple weeks ago. And he has now been declared Dr. John Mark Steele. 
And so he's going to be marching in a couple weeks over at Bob Jones University as he graduates. Um, they're both involved. Matthias is the director of the Bible College down there, and John Mark and Deborah are on the side, and they teach there. Both of those missionaries with EMU also help lead in church ministries. We're with Tom and Connie Chapman in Chile. Uh, we're also with Tim and Cheryl Chapman in Peru. Uh, Alexis Shoemaker has just been married. She was a single missionary that's down there, just got married, uh, serving and helping out. We're in Mexico. This coming Wednesday, I'm going to be heading down to Mexico to be with Marco and Gwendolyn Nunez. Last Easter, I had the privilege of going down and helping train these national missionaries, different churches that he's helped establish and start in Mexico. Here's some photos of our church and our trip last year as I had the privilege of going down and training. I'll be doing that. I think I'm speaking 15 different times uh, in Mexico uh, over the next week. You can pray for us. In France, uh, we've got Tim and Ruth Bixby doing an amazing work on the outskirts of Paris in church planting. Uh, we're in Croatia. This is um, a national missionary that's been trained and uh, serving God there that we're working with. I had the privilege of being with Cornel Srinkovic a couple years ago. Um, we're also, um, what country are we here? India. We're in India with Billy and Sarita Judson. Billy and his dad are an interesting story. Billy and his dad had started 57 Bible colleges in the past 22 years. I don't know if you can read it. Currently, there are 57 teaching states in nine or teaching sites in nine states of India that have had over 16,000 graduates. What's very interesting is the different training programs that we're doing. Um, they're financially self-sustained through a local church. Billy's going to be with me in June. I'm going to be carting him across. Here's some photos of my recent trip that I got to go to India, but this past year, due to COVID, we actually ended up doing a virtual conference with over a 1,000 uh, participants. As a director, I'm not your typical mission director. We're not your typical board. Uh, somebody said, Jeff, you're really kind of a shepherd of shepherds as you're traveling and preaching and encouraging pastors, but you're also a missionary to missionaries. And I helped organize and train these, uh, these guys in India, and we're going to be doing this again. Billy's going to be with me again in June for a while. We're in Cambodia. This is an interesting story. J.D. and Kim Crowley. J.D. was one of the first that got to go to Cambodia. Now you may recognize some of the pictures there uh, of Cambodia. Cambodia is mostly associated because it's next to Vietnam. Uh, we sometimes think of President Richard Nixon and Watergate and impeachment and what all that might have looked like. His first articles of impeachment were for the secret bombing of Cambodia. It was not for Vietnam. Um, the Kent State riots, that was over Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia was a country that was made up of six million people. Pol Pot, a communist dictator, wanted to have a great reset. I've heard that phrase recently. And they had this great reset and make it back to an agrarian economy. Children's army, basically, out of that country of six million people, they, they sl um, slew two million of their own people. And uh, terrible, terrible times. I was able to visit the killing fields and uh, as I was over and visited that, it was one of those sobering places. As you saw that beautiful tower, you get closer, and all it is is a row upon row of skulls, uh, human skulls. You can see the tree where the kids were uh, slammed up against to be murdered. But J.D. had the privilege of going into Cambodia. J.D. made the statement, a Christian is a person who cannot endure the thought that there is a place in the world where God is unknown, unpraised, unworshipped, Unthanked, where Jesus Christ is not famous, where the gospel is not heard. 
And his whole mission has been focused on making Jesus famous. He went up into the northern tribal areas, the little shaded area, the Ratamakari Parabas, and the goal was to make God famous by telling his story. And in that area where nobody 25 years ago even knew the name Jesus, today they've seen over 3,000 believers, six previously unreached people groups. Uh, you can see from the description, it's probably a little small. They have over 70 churches that have been established, 100 first-generation, second-generation church leaders. They're even starting their own pastor school now, uh, training them. Here is a photo of our most recent pastor school that we had. So God's doing amazing work around the world. One of the things I said this morning to the Lord as I was driving up here, as I was preparing to come, I, I was thinking, I really want to encourage our folks that we're going to be with today to, to just see a God that is alive and that is doing something. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we think like Elijah, woe is me, I'm the only person out here, or we're out here by ourselves slaving away. God is at work today. And, and I, I just hope you'll be encouraged by that. We've got several other families. We've got the Farmer family, Brooke Ilsley, Josh, or the Hancocks. Uh, the Hancocks are church planting there. Uh, Josh and Amy Jensen, two folks that have their PhDs. Josh has written two alphabets. Uh, for tribes, teaching them how to read. They're translating the Bible. Uh, now we're also with the Cain family doing translation work. And then we've got one of our missionaries that goes in and out of the 1040 window. So when you look at EMU International, nine countries, 34 U.S. missionaries, 51 national missionaries, and one great commission. And our burden is to see our mission expand. And you may have noticed there's some older folks that were on the slides there. One of our missionaries, Marco, who I'm going to be with next week, was 52 years old when he went to be a missionary in Cancun. God has done an amazing work in establishing seven churches with nationals down there now in the past 25 years. So I'm so excited. God can still work and can work in your heart and life. But I want to share with you some scripture this morning from Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to fly through this today, but I do hope that this will encourage you in your heart. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to begin by looking at Paul's introductory greeting here. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseer and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way that this begins and letters begin like this in the New Testament. It makes so much more sense than the way we write letters today. Sometimes you get a letter, it might be three pages long, you have to turn over to the back to see who it's from. Right here at the very beginning, we see the name of the writer, we see the name of the recipient uh, in the salutation there, the name of the writer, the name of the recipient. We see this word of greeting from, from the very outset. We see it being described as Paul and Timothy. Now, when you think about that little phrase, Paul and Timothy, who were they? Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Notice they didn't say Paul and Timothy, super Christians. He didn't even say Paul the apostle. But he said that these are servants of Jesus Christ. Many years ago, there was a man that was committed to God in his heart and mind, but he did not really know God because he didn't know Jesus. And this, this man, as we would look, would, would be almost a terrorist because of the way he was attacking the Christians and, and murdering and killing these Christians. And, and here he was a very religious, very knowledgeable person this, this particular man, Saul of Tarsus, ends up coming to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. His life is totally radically changed. And, and now we see him in his whole life being dedicated to taking the gospel, 
to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. And this was a huge part of his mission ministry. Here he is writing along with his protege, his apprentice, Timothy. Timothy, his name means he who honors God. He's mentioned here, not because he wrote the letter, but because he's accompanying Paul in this. And again, they were servants. Literally, the phrase there is like they are slaves. And more accurately than the fact that they're just slaves, they are like a slave that has been given their freedom, but instead of taking their freedom, they're willingly submitting themselves to their master. And that's the relationship that they're saying, we are servants or slaves to Jesus Christ. And as he's writing this letter, he's writing it to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The, the word saints means one who has set apart their heart for service. It's not an icon like you would find in the Roman Catholic Church or some kind of statue that we would hold up for somebody. It's the person that is a true believer in Jesus Christ, somebody that has been set apart for Jesus Christ. And he's writing them specifically, and he's also writing to the overseer, are literally overseers, the elders, the pastors, the, the, the bishops. The, here, here, this idea of, of um, the same word meaning the same thing. Those leaders in the church also addressing the deacons. The word deacon meaning servants. Uh, and he's addressing them. So these are real people. And he's writing to a real place. And we see this with the idea of Philippi. This was his second missionary journey. Now... If you want to know the backstory, and we're not going to have time to get into all of this detail, but Acts chapter 16 tells the story of those that were the foundational church that was there. You may recall when Paul went, he had the vision to head to Macedonia. He goes over to Macedonia. Or, or what he was wanting to go. He ends up going now over into Philippi. As he gets to Philippi, he finds the area. This is the basics of the map of his journey. As he gets there, his main program would be to go to the synagogue. But there's not enough men, Jewish men, that are even in this town of Philippi that he ends up having to go down to the river. And that's normally the custom of what they would do, to find the believers down at the ri a river gathered and worshiping. So he finds himself down at the river. He encounters a, a woman that's seeking God, a seller of purple. Her name is Lydia. She becomes the first convert in this town of Philippi. There's another woman that's coming along. She's, she's proclaiming, these men are servants of God and proclaiming you know, Jesus Christ. Well, it turns out that this woman's demon-possessed. She's actually telling the truth, but Peter, I mean, uh, Paul ends up casting the demon out. He doesn't want her doing this because Satan will say one thing, one truth here. He'll use truth, but then he'll pervert it over here. So he casts the demon out. But that was a problem to the men in the city that were using her for monetary purposes. So they get thrown, Paul and Silas get thrown into prison, and you remember the story of the Philippian jailer, there's the earthquake that night, and, and then the Philippian jailer, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he didn't say you have to join a church, he didn't say you have to be baptized, he said it's all about Jesus, and when he, and it says he's saved and his family's saved and then later they're baptized. So right now, this was the charter members of the church at Philippi. You know, this, this woman, business woman, a former demon-possessed woman. You have this Philippian jailer. It's about 10 years later now. And Paul is writing back to these people. And there's a very, very dear relationship that he has with them. And, and so Paul begins with a typical Greek greeting. Grace, a typical Hebrew greeting. Peace. Shalom to you. 
And he's saying, grace, God's undeserved favor upon you and peace. And that's how we find peace is through the grace of God. And at the very end of verse 2, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to comment about Paul's expression of gratitude. Look at what he says here. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your, here's the phrase, partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So from the very beginning, there was a relationship that was established between the missionary, the, the leader, and the church, the assembly, the people that made up that. And in his attitude was one, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. Now, I'm not sure that Paul could say that about every ministry that he went to. You know, he was in Corinth. That was a pretty difficult place. There were some other diff- churches in Galatia, the churches that made up that area with all the false teachers. There was a lot of hard issue and work he had to go through. But this was one church that bought Paul a lot of joy. In fact, joy is going to be a main theme that you're going to find here in the book of Philippians. Joy is a key word. It's found 19 times in this book. But it may surprise you when people say, well, joy is the theme of Philippians. Jesus Christ is found over 40 times. So really Christ would be the theme of the book of Philippians. But I love this book. There's something very, very special about this particular relationship that he has with them. And it's bringing them joy. Now, you ever think about this? And I'm not, I'm not sure. You folks have been very, very kind this morning. I've enjoyed my time with you. Uh, you've been very, I'm glad we came and we were here for the Sunday school hour to get to see uh, some of you. I never got one of those muffins. I wished I would have done that. They look so good, but I didn't grab one. Uh, but um, you guys have been very kind. You seem to be very happy. You seem to be joyful. A lot of churches aren't like that. You ever encounter Christians and it looks like they're just sad all the time? You know, you go around and it's almost like, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. You know, it's kind of like the way they, you know, or, or they sing. You were singing and we're singing these great songs. Amazing grace, my chains are gone. That should cause us to be joyful. And yet, sometimes it's like, Things are gone. I've been set free. I'm like, woe is me, you know? <laughs> like, like being saved is the penalty for getting to go to heaven or something. And, and you know, I remember, you know, I, I come from the South. I, I know you wouldn't have known that by my accent. I knew you couldn't have figured that out. But I, I come from the South. In our area, some folks sometimes get a little expressive in folks to kind of express their gratitude a little bit. And they weren't going to say amen or hallelujah. You couldn't get them to do that. So it took a bunch of helium balloons. And as everybody came in the auditorium, and I'm not recommending you do this, brother. But everybody, everybody got a helium balloon. And so they got the balloon, and the service started. And if something spoke to your heart, you were just supposed to let it. This was kind of your hallelujah. Let the balloon go. And, and that was... So it was, they said it was an interesting service because all throughout the service, balloons started floating up to the sky. They, they said, but one of, the, he said one of the most disappointing things about it was when the service was over, about half the balloons hadn't been let go. <laughs> I don't know if that's a commentary on the people or the preaching or what, but Christians should be joyful. And Paul is writing to them in this church that has brought great joy. Now, when we talk about that word partnership, it's the word fellowship, the word koinonia. Now, a lot of times when you think about a, pat or a missionary and a relationship to a church, we think of that first thing of giving. And giving is key and important. It takes money to do missions around the world. It takes money to do missionary work. We know that. Ministry is expensive. 
And, and I'm so grateful for the partnership that we enjoy as a mission through John Mark Steele with this particular assembly. What a blessing that is. We would love to introduce you to other. I'm, I'm one that's needing to raise personal support. We're a small agency. I, I need to be doing that. Most people look at me and they look, oh, he's the director. He, no, I'm the least paid of all of our missionaries, the way it comes down. But money is important. But notice there are other areas that Paul talks about this partnership, how it expands beyond just the idea of giving. In chapter 1 and verse 19, there's that partnership in praying. There's even a partnership of suffering together that the Bible talks about at the end of chapter 1. And obviously the partnership of witnessing in, in chapter 4 and verses 2 through 3. Now again, the word is koinonia, and it's a deeper fellowship or an association. It's just the community and communion and partnership and all of these relationships. It was even used that way in uh, modern, or the modern, it would have been the ancient for us, but it would be the normal Greek language, the common Greek tongue that they would use for ways it would be used. But, but if you picture again the mighty aspen, it's not a single tree fighting survival on its own. There's that common root of fellowship in Christ Jesus around the true gospel, around the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to partnership and missions, and we're talking about a fellowship here, the Philippians were the senders, Paul and his companions were the goers. In a very real sense, somebody has to be the bow and somebody has to be the arrow. And it was Paul being sent as the arrow by the bow, the local assembly that was there. And, and I want you to understand, it's kind of, again, the relationship like the quaking aspen. It's an interdependent. I love that word. It's an interdependent. And that's a picture of what the church is. That's a picture of what the body of Christ is. You know, not everybody's uh, a mouthpiece. Not everybody's an ear. Not everybody's a hand. Uh, you know, somebody might be the little toe. But let me tell you, I've broken my little toe. That's very important. We're all important. We're interdependent there. One of the great missionaries that we know of in the past, William Carey, known as the father of modern missions, saw missions as a picture of a miner going down into a dark mine that's not been explored. And uh, he looked at, at it that way. And he, he said to his friends, Andrew Fuller, and to John Ryland and his other pastor's friends, he says, I will go down, like into the mine, if you will hold the rope. And John Ryland reports, he took an oath from each one of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we live, we should never let go of the rope. So the Great Commission is a command to all Christians to do this, but there are going to be certain folks that are going to be going out. Utah is a mission field. Nevada is a mission field. New England is a mission field. Our, our country is becoming more and more post-Christian, or there are areas of our country that are unchristian that have not where the gospel has not hit. But even in the east, the southeast, where I live in the buckle of the Bible belt, churches are dying. There is such a need for the gospel, and there's a need for folks to be sent, and churches to be partnering and sending them out. And I love, I love J.R.R. Tolkien. He's probably one of my favorite writers. Some of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings and the story. The first book of the Lord of the Rings is the Fellowship of the Ring. And if you look at the different characters that make up that, You've got wizards, and you've got dwarves, you've got elves, and, and, and dwarves and elves are kind of not, they're not the best of friends and all, but they've come together with man, and they've come together with these little halflings, these hobbits, and they've come around a common purpose, and this was a fellowship. 
committed. Not a single one of us are here the same. Your pastor talked about it in Sunday school. We're never going to please everybody. That's not why we're here. We're not here to please you. We're not here to please me. Now, we all want to be liked. We all want to get along. We'd love to have that kind of relationship. But the fellowship is not going to be work if all we're trying to do is please the pastor. That's not our goal. We're here to please Jesus. And if we're here around that one purpose, just like they were united around the purpose of the ring, we're here for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our fellowship. And that's what he uses, the fellowship of the gospel, that kind of a commitment. Now, notice Paul's assurance as we uh, think about them. And I am sure, he says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion under the day of Jesus Christ. There's several points I could make on this. You'll, you'll notice what I'm giving you right here is probably about three sermons in one easily. But here he's saying uh, something very key. God commences the work. I look at this as the doctrinal theme of justification, where we're declared righteous before God. God commences the work, and he's absolutely convinced that God has begun this work in the life of these people. They're here. God began this. He who began, and the emphasis is on God. Who is God, and what has he done? Who is God, and what has he done? I know in, a, in my own heart and mind that the natural man does not seek out God. But you know, God is even working in your heart here today because you're here. You showed up here. God is doing something. And, and I want to just challenge you to let God do his work in your heart and life. And he'll do that through his word. He'll do that through his Holy Spirit. He'll do that through those that have come together to help encourage you through the word in the spirit. But in my mind, as I look at this, or Paul's mind, he says, I'm convinced that God is the one that began this. If we go back to Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it describes Lydia, this first convert, it says, the one who the Lord opened her heart. And it's my prayer, if there are here folks here today that do not know Jesus as their Savior, that today God would open your heart. That God would do this. I can't do this for you. Really, you can't do it for yourself because the natural desire is not to do this. But God, through his Holy Spirit, through his word, get in the word, let God's word do this in your heart and life. He who did this, and when they were saved, again, and it, it was not a work that they did, for by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 said, it was by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, God did this. It was God's gift to us. We were now justified. The second part is God continues the work. He will bring it. The King James says he will perform it. And this is the idea of sanctification, where we're being changed. You know, when it comes to that point where we receive Christ as our Savior, when we, when we finally turn our lives to him and just say, God, I can't do this. Jesus, you did it all for me. I believe this. I accept this. This is my belief. I, I'm leaping off into your arms right now, Jesus. It's like when my daughter was four years old and got stuck in this little treehouse and couldn't get down, and I said... I said, Abby, jump to daddy. And she said, I got, she, came to the end, she, she came to the end of the treehouse and she did this. <laughs> and I said, just jump to daddy. And, I, and, and she, she did this again. And I said, don't you believe that daddy will catch you? And she said, daddy, I believe. And I thought, this is going to be a great sermon illustration one day. 
Because so many people are here doing this, believing in Jesus is when we basically quit all this other stuff. We're not trusting the church, we're not trusting our baptism, we're leaping into Jesus' arms. And once we've done that, now God begins to work in our heart and we're changed to be like Jesus. I went to a church not long ago that had name tags. I was, I was tempted to put this on my name tag. How many of you have seen this before? P-B-P-W-M-G-I-N-F-W-M-Y. Anybody ever seen that before? What does that mean? You know, I can't. It's not some kind of foreign tongue or something like this. It says, please be finished. Please be patient with me. God's not finished with me yet. How many of you feel like that? God's not finished with you now. We haven't arrived yet. This is the work of sanctification. God's going to continue to perform this under the day of Jesus Christ. And in the very end, God completes the work. He he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I put the little train there because it's been said, once you get on the station of justification, you're destined for the station of glorification. God's going to do his work in you, and that's what Paul is saying in this particular passage. And then he gives this admiration. It is right for me to feel this way because I hold you in my heart, for ye all are partakers with me of the grace both in my imprisonment in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And we could park it there for a while, but you see there is such a key relationship. If you'll indulge me for just a few more minutes here, we see finally, and in, in, what I'm going to do is whet your appetite for verses 9 through 11. I'm just going to give you a highlight of an outline here that you can take with you and meditate on this because this is where it comes together as a church what we're to be what we're to look like and this is paul's prayer for growth and he's going to lay it out by giving two points the measure of genuine discipleship in verse 9 and then the motivation for this discipleship in verses 10 through 11. now consider with me the measure of genuine discipleship it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and in all discernment what is this going to look like? What it's going to look like is there's going to be a love that abounds. This is this agape love. The love that is a choice, not a feeling. It's a love that is unconditional. It is what marks us as disciples. By this will all men know you are my disciples if you cut your hair a certain way. Is that what the Bible said? By this shall all men know you are my disciples if your hymn links reach a certain limit. Is, is that what he says? No, what's going to mark a disciple is that you have love one towards another. And notice how he describes it. It's a love that abounds. It's a picture of the overflowing. Now, I don't know how much water this room could hold, how many gallons or thousands or tons or whatever it would hold in here, but the picture is that just as if this room was full of water and blowing the water out the windows, this is a picture of love that is in this assembly that's blowing the windows off of this place. That should mark who we are. This is my desire, he says, my prayer to you, marking you as a disciple. And there's this knowledge that grows. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. And this is a picture of this deep, seated, personal, intimate relationship knowledge. It's not this just simple, I know something. This is something, there is a deep relationship in this. And then there's this discernment that develops. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This is the idea to be able to discern not only what is good, but what is better, 
and looking, okay, what is best? And this is where we should be operating as a church, the motivation. And here we see, I went too fast, the motivation of doing the disciples. So that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve, and this is our motivation, so that you may approve what is excellent and pure and blameless with the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Four things, a discerning life, approving things that are excellent. This is a picture of like what is fool's gold and what's real gold. We're going to be able to prove what is real and what is not. Um, this is the idea of knowing how to discern right from wrong. A blameless life. And so be pure and blameless before the days of Jesus Christ. This is an interesting word picture here. Back in the day, they would go into the pottery stores and buy a picture of, of, of or they would buy like a pitcher of clay, and sometimes they would take that pitcher home, put water in it, and it would start leaking. It had cracks in it. And what they did is they would take wax, the merchant's one, the unethical ones, would put wax in those cracks. So the, the discerning shopper got to where they would take these pitchers or pots outside and hold them up to the light of the sun and by looking at that they would see whether there was wax or not and so that word sincere literally means without wax and that's who we're supposed to be we're supposed to be pure and sincere we're supposed to be authentic and, re and real that we're not put on what we are in the dark is the same thing we are in the light and what we are at work and school is what we are at church we're to be sunlight Christians. We're to be blameless. Then he says a fruitful life filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And again, where are we rooted? If we're like the quaking aspen, we're rooted together in Jesus Christ. And then it is a God-centered life. And I love the phrase there, to the glory and praise of God. Thomas Watson was a Puritan. And he just basically summarized it by God's glory being the goal, which is an expression of appreciation to God, adoration to God, our affection to God, and then ultimately our subjection to who God is. And that's the goal, is God's glory. I love the way another Puritan writer had written this. It's called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. It starts with abounding love. This is the marks of our discipleship it starts with abounding love the manifest itself in knowledge and discernment resulting in the ability to make wise choices under pressure the visible fruit of righteous life that comes from a living relationship with jesus christ so that god alone gets the glory let's all stand together for just a moment i'm going to ask you one more time link arms with those next to you and i want to ask you a question again What's the largest organism in the world? Is it the blue whale? Is it the giant sequoia? Is it the quaking aspen? No, it's not. Because of your fellowship. That's the name of your church. Because of your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The church is the largest and greatest organism in the world. I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about the living body of Christ. You folks have an opportunity to do that tonight as you come and pray. You have an opportunity to do that next week as you come and celebrate the greatest event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And you get to have fun and hunt eggs at the same time. What a great thing. You have an opportunity to live and encourage. And there's folks right now that you have an opportunity to pray for. And there are things you can do to make a difference in this community as you go and take a stand for life. What's the strongest and greatest organism right now in this world? And I would commit to you, you have an opportunity in partnership where you can make a difference in Uruguay. And you can make a difference in Europe, in Africa, and wherever you've planted gospel seeds. And you can make a difference in the lives of those young people that are sitting in the back that others are working with right now. Again, there's about three or four sermons right here this morning you can see, and I've tried to whet your appetite a little bit for here today. But if I could close with this, in any way, I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been encouraged to be the church that you're supposed to be. You've encouraged me already this morning. I hope we've been an encouragement to God. That's why we're here to worship Him. Let's pray and close this morning, and then I'll turn it over to Pastor. Father, thank you so much for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the fellowship and the gospel. And Lord, what you're doing around the world. And thank you for these precious saints that are here. Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not know you as their personal Savior, if they've not come to that point of really just jumping into the arms of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would just draw them to yourself. Lord, may this body of believers be instrumental. May you use them uh, to touch lives right here in this valley. Lord, may you be a light. May they be a light and a testimony. May they be sincere. May these marks of discipleship just mark who they are. And, and Lord, we pray that they would just be blowing the windows off with the love that is marked by who this assembly is. I pray in Jesus' name.